2020 is a big year for voting rights. Black men got the right to vote 150 years ago with the 15th Amendment. White women got the right to vote 100 years ago with the 19th Amendment. But black women? They had to fight for their right to vote well into the 1960s. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. In 1964, Fannie Lou Hamer testified before the Democratic National Convention about the violence she endured when trying to vote in Mississippi. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we was held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, how Black women continued organizing for the vote long after passage of the 19th Amendment. But first, Amanda Nelson and Molly Hood were on the road heading to a play when they first had the idea for their own play to be called Performing History, Women in the Vote. And they had the whole thing figured out by the time they arrived at their destination. But a week before curtain time for their own play, the pandemic made theaters biohazards and everything moved online. Amanda Nelson is a professor of theater at Virginia Tech. Molly Hood is a theater and cinema professor at Radford University. Their students are bringing suffragettes to life one click at a time on an interactive website called Women in the Vote. Amanda, what gave you the idea for this project? Uh, There were sort of multiple things happening. I was very much aware of the centennial anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment coming up in 2020. And I very much wanted to do some sort of theatrical performance-based project around that because performance was such an important part of the movement. Uh, And then I was having conversations with colleagues, um, particularly with Molly, about um, how we could excite our students about history and theater history through performance. And I chatted to my friend and colleague, Molly, and we developed Performing History, Women in the Vote. And Molly, how did you come up with the idea for how the performance would work. When I was a teenager, I attended a performance that was put on in a home where the audience traveled through the house and saw uh, different vignettes and scenes being performed. And it it left a, a strong impression on me as a teenage theater nerd. And when Amanda and I <laughs> were talking about This project, (laughs) you know, as as she mentioned, we were uh, on a car ride together to see some theater in Stanton. And when Amanda mentioned the idea of this project, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to replicate that idea and have the audience move through the house and discover these stories? Looking at these vignettes of students performing online in the various figurative rooms you have, it looks like there was a Victorian-era house that was used. But how did you pull this off given that COVID drove everything online? Oh, sigh. (laughs) We had originally planned for uh, the performance to be immersive and interactive in the Alexander Black House, which is a Victorian house museum here in Blacksburg. And when COVID-19 hit and we had to move everything online, we immediately said, okay, we're going to move online. And so this special performance website came to being. So it looks like a website that has a kind of Victorian dollhouse with different rooms, 
And in each room, you all have set it up so you can click on it and you showcase a student who was giving a performance of a different suffragette. Tell us first about the woman called a dress reformer who wants to be able to wear pants and the soliloquy the student gives about her. Sure. So that's a wonderful student at Radford University who's now a graduate named Devin. Devin was very interested in her to learn more about her. She was a doctor, a surgeon during the Civil War, and she she wore pants, uh, which was you know revolutionary at the time. And Dr. Walker really pushed against the norm of women being corseted and in these dresses that were a hindrance to her. After the war, I went about my business and my practice, and still I was arrested and mocked for wearing men's clothes. If I do see the day the legislature acknowledges our constitutional right of suffrage, I shall cast my vote wearing trousers. I hadn't realized it was part of that movement, and that there were so-called dress reformers. Yes, uh, it started pretty early in the 1840s and 1850s and with the bloomers, Amelia Bloomer, and um, and then into pants. And um, in the 1890s, bicycles were popular. And so having freedom of movement to be able to ride a bicycle um, and be athletic uh, was very important and uh, really paralleled, I think, the changes of social attitude, but also empowerment of women. Who else could we hear? Uh, how about we listen to uh, Maggie Walker, performed by Lauren Brown. So Maggie Walker is an African-American uh, Virginia suffragist uh, and a civil rights activist. She was very famous for starting the first bank by an African-American woman. She uh, lived in Richmond, Virginia. And this scene is taking place on a warm summer day in the Jackson Ward neighborhood of Richmond. Maggie Walker is sitting in the parlor with her friend Janie, who came over to check on Maggie, and they get into a conversation about um, what's preoccupying and weighing on Maggie's mind. I've been keeping my mind steady on work, but also staying involved in my organizations. Did you see that flyer from the... Equal Suffrage League of Virginia? It's right at the top of that stack. It showed up at my office the other day, and they're looking for the National Association of Colored Women's response. It argues that, and I quote, giving only white women the right to vote would preserve white supremacy, and that the literacy test and poll tax would continue to deter blacks from voting. I applaud yet am skeptical of their intentions in the release of this flyer. Why now? They are one of the same groups who were afraid that affiliation with colored women would impede on them gaining public and government support. Huh. Colored sisters forced to the back of their marches, fighting one social injustice, yet abiding by another. Maggie Walker was a Black woman leading the way for the right to vote. But were there other Black women and poor women who were also uh, prominent in the history books? Uh, Absolutely. There are a number of African-American women and men who were part of the suffragist movement. The abolitionist movement and the suffragist movement are intermingled throughout much of this history. And so in addition to Maggie Walker, we see a woman named Ida B. Wells. She's an incredible individual. She campaigned against lynching. And there's a very famous story about her during the march in Washington in 1913, where she was told she could not march with the delegation from Illinois and that she had to march in the back of the parade. And she did not. And so she stood on the sidelines. And when the Illinois delegation came by, she joined the parade and marched with the Illinois delegation. And I think that one thing that's really important to mention here is that the history books or the history of the suffrage movement that we grew up with was a very white middle class and upper middle class telling of the story of the suffrage movement. And what the centennial has done is given us a real chance to go back and really tell the full story because the full story had really not been told. And in the last few years, there have been a number of historians and feminist scholars and artists working on sort of uncovering and giving voice to those who uh, had not been given a voice in the history books, and now they have a chance to. And that was an important part of our project. We were eager to make sure that we were 
not just telling the story of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton again, but really telling the story of the incredible hard work and persistent hard work over years and years and generations of women from all walks of life and from all backgrounds and men, I should give some credit to the men, who were in support of suffrage to really make the ratification finally happen in 1920. Molly, while you were doing your research, were there any moments that were particularly moving or aha moments for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I conducted some research at the Library of Virginia in Richmond. They have the Equal Suffrage League of Virginia records there. And last December, December of 2019, I was looking through documents, looking through some of the files, and which is incredible in and of itself, you know, to actually go put your hands on, uh, on history in that way. And there was a particular file that had biographical sketches of some of the Virginia suffragists. And included in these sketches were, and when I say sketches, I mean written sketches, verbal sketches, not actual drawings. And as I was flipping through and reading about some of these women, included in the file were uh, resolutions passed by the Equal Suffrage League honoring certain members who had passed away. And oh gosh, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. (laughs) There was an individual who uh, had passed away in December of 1919. And so they passed this resolution uh, in December of 1919. And I was sitting in the library reading this this wonderful tribute to this particular woman, uh, particularly praising some of her writing. And I realized that the date on the resolution was, you know, the very next day that I was reading this resolution almost exactly 100 years to the day that it had been passed. And the big aha moment for me in that that time was that there were so many individuals, men and women, who fought for suffrage, who didn't get to see it. Um, You know, when the process of getting the 19th Amendment ratified went to the states in the summer of 1919, um, and then was eventually passed in 1920. You had people that died before they could see the fruits of their labor realized, and I think that it really made me aware of how extraordinarily lucky I am as a female um, to have all these people who did not know me <laughs> to fight for the right for me to vote. It gives me chills to hear you tell her story. And I've had a rather simplistic view of the women's suffrage movement where these women in Victorian dress and sashes are marching along, and I haven't really felt their story close to me. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I I think all of us, as I said, I think what's been so wonderful about having a reason to celebrate and mark the 19th Amendment has really given us all a chance to to learn more and to to look back um, so that we can act forward. In fact, that's what Molly and I kind of came up with, um, a phrase that we use to describe our concept performing history, which is look back, act forward. And the idea is to, to express something from the past in the present moment, but to help move us forward And hopefully works like Performing History and the other um, projects, documentaries, plays, music, museum exhibits that have come out for the marking of the 100th anniversary of the ratification will allow everyone across the states to learn a little bit more about our history and in in the battle for the vote. Before I let you go, we have time for one more opening of a room to hear students perform. And this one I love. It is a number of your students singing (laughs) together, even though by this time you'd been shut down by the COVID pandemic, right? Correct. (laughs) Molly, (laughs) Molly, do you want to talk about? Sure. We had hoped as part of the project to have singing in the house. One of our students at Radford University, Rachel Groover, she recorded herself playing the ukulele 
And we sent that accompaniment to all of the students. They recorded themselves individually, and then Rachel spliced it together so that it sounds like a chorus of voices singing when we were all just in our homes and apartments and garages and rooms singing alone. So she brought us all together into one one chorus. I was really touched by the lyrics. This is very simple. It's to the tune of Auld Syne. When you listen to the lyrics, you really hear the women asking for something so simple and being rebuffed by closed-minded colleagues, family members, and others. And what's nice is on the actual website, we have all three verses of the song. And it's in the final verse that there's a glimmer of hope because there's a young man who who understands that, that women must have the right to vote. But it takes uh, two verses <laughs> to get to that point. Can you read some of the lyrics so that when we play it, we know what they have said? Sure. The first verse is, I have a neighbor, one of those not very hard to find, who knows it all without debate and never change his mind. I asked him, what of women's rights? He said in tones severe, my mind on that is all made up. Keep woman in her sphere. Um, And then the last verse is, I met an earnest, thoughtful man not many days ago who pondered deep all human law, the honest truth to know. I asked him what of woman's cause. The answer came sincere. Her rights are just the same as mine. Let woman choose her sphere. Let's play the students singing themselves now. I just think it's so wonderful to hear their voices together, knowing it was one of those where they all had to contribute and then have it put together in the end. I agree. Listening to that now, you know, I can pick out some of my students' individual voices, but putting it all together and hearing that chorus all together is quite moving. Well, Amanda Nelson and Molly Hood, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. And thank you. Molly Hood is a professor of theater at Radford University. Amanda Nelson is a professor of theater at Virginia Tech. You can experience the Women in the Vote Theater Project online at performinghistory.com. Coming up next, Black women organized for the right to vote well into the 1960s. We often think of the Voting Rights Act as the crowning achievement of Black suffrage. But Virginia Tech professor Lucian Holness says the voting rights struggle continues today. He helped craft Virginia Tech's exhibit called African American Women and the Fight for the Vote. Lucian, what's the story of African American women's suffrage? Does it begin and end in 1920 with the 19th Amendment? Absolutely not. Uh, Black women's suffrage springs out of the abolitionist movement. So one of the most famous women suffragettes of the mid-19th century was Sojourner Truth. She's a known Black women's suffragette, also campaigning against slavery for Black equal rights. Another figure, Mary Ann Shad Carey, also an abolitionist, one of the first female African-American newspaper editors. Uh, She's also a campaigner for suffrage, women's suffrage and Black women's suffrage. Black women's suffrage actually begins years before the 19th Amendment, I mean, during slavery. When you started delving into this more fully, were there any surprises to you about how little you knew about the Black women's suffragist movement? Yeah. One area that really surprised me is that when the 19th Amendment passes, Black women in some places, some states and localities in the South, Black women vote with relative ease in the immediate aftermath of the 19th Amendment. I mean, Kentucky is one example of that. Whereas the story is not the same for Texas. Places like Houston and Texas try to prevent Black women from registering to vote. One reason, one possible reason why there aren't these immediate restrictions in Kentucky possibly could be because 
Black women are such a small portion, Black voters in general are such a small portion of the population in Kentucky. That's one thing that surprised me. And the sheer number of Black women who run for office, I mean, as Black women candidates. One Black woman candidate, Maggie Walker from Richmond. She's a banker and social activist. She runs on an all-Black ticket for candidate for superintendent of public instruction in Virginia. So a statewide office. Now, that all-Black ticket that runs in 1921 in Virginia loses to the Democrats, but it illustrates that African-Americans are willing and going when enfranchised. They're going to use the vote to advance an agenda of racial equality. And Black women are not shy from that. So on one hand, you're surprised how many took the opportunity and did vote. On the other hand, there were setbacks for decades. Absolutely. I mean, when the 19th Amendment passes, African-American women are incredibly hopeful that this will usher in an era of racial equality. I mean, they have every right to believe that, actually. I mean, In 1920, another thing that surprised me is that he's not president yet, but he's a senator from Ohio. Warren G. Harding actually makes overtures to black women to gain their support in the 1920 election. And many black women actually do endorse Warren G. Harding, support his campaign, work for the Republican Party. Now, despite this important developments. In many places in the South, Black women lose the vote much more quickly than I would have thought in less than a decade. And some of those methods that are undertaken to disenfranchise Black women are, of course, the poll tax and what's called the grandmother clause, which is a spin on the grandfather clause, which was used to disenfranchise Black men. The grandfather clause was that men could register to vote if their grandfather had been eligible to vote before the Civil War, which is a tactic that North Carolina takes, even though the grandfather clause years earlier had been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So different Southern states adopt different tactics to disenfranchise Black women and Black voters. So if women voted in large numbers initially after the passage of the amendment, but then African-American women started to lose the vote by these overt racist efforts to tampen down their power. When did they reemerge and more fully get the vote again? So Black women are a huge power base in the North. I mean, they're they're small in number, but they're a huge political power base in the North. So it's not until we get the Great Migration of World War I and World War II when African-Americans in huge numbers begin to flee the South, that's when African-Americans in larger numbers begin to become more of a powerful voting bloc because the restrictions in the South on Black suffrage aren't present in the North. You helped curate a recent exhibit at the Virginia Tech Library on African-American women's suffrage movement. Tell us about a few of the people you highlighted among the dozens who were included in that exhibit. Yeah, so the exhibit highlighted not just women, but also the organizations they established for suffrage rights. One of those organizations was the Alpha Suffrage Club, and the Alpha Suffrage Club was founded by Ida B. Wells, another famous Black suffragette. The Alpha Suffrage Club was formed to give a voice to African-American women who had been excluded from other suffrage groups. Another famous Black women's activist would be Fannie Lou Hamer, a sharecropper's daughter from Mississippi, involved in the modern civil rights movement, seeking to enfranchise not just Black women, but African-Americans all across the South. Uh, Hamer takes part in the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. It's a massive education and voter registration effort that takes place in the summer of 1964 in Mississippi to register African-Americans to vote. I first heard of Fannie Lou Hamer in grad school, reading some of the biographies. Were you moved by that speech in the 1964 Democratic Party convention? Yeah, I was. Uh, It speaks to the brutality and violence, the lengths that local officials went to to prevent African-Americans from voting. So let me play for you an excerpt of Fannie Lou Hamer's speech that she gives before the Credentials Committee at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. I was in jail when Madka Evers was murdered. All of this is the 
own account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. Fannie Lou Hamer is part of a delegation to the Democratic National Convention in 1964. She's part of what's called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. They challenged the legitimacy of Mississippi's all-white segregationist delegation at the Democratic National Convention. And President Johnson recognizes the source of embarrassment that this could cause for the party in this very pivotal election year. So what Johnson does when he hears Hamer giving her testimony He convenes an emergency press conference. And so the media cuts from Hamer's testimony to Johnson's press conference, where they think he's going to announce his running mate in the 1964 race, where in fact, it really brings no news. It actually backfires, where the media, when they cut back to Hamer, it reappears on the news and it's played over and over again. You know, it's tempting to think the fight for Black women's suffrage ended with the civil rights movement and leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer. But should you add Stacey Abrams, the Georgia politician and voting rights activist, to a list of activists for Black women's vote? Absolutely. Some people usually cap the 1965 Voting Rights Act as the crowning achievement to full Black suffrage. And it's an important piece of legislation. I mean, African-Americans vote in larger numbers. A number of African-Americans run and win office thanks to the Voting Rights Act. However, in recent years, with the Supreme Court's shift to the right, we've begun to see the Voting Rights Act under threat and states making it more and more difficult for people to vote. I mean, we could just see in some of these elections in these past few months, the long lines for voting, making it increasingly difficult for people, especially people of color, to vote. So yes, I would def- I would include people like Stacey Abrams and other activists as part of this ongoing struggle to ensure that people's right to vote is protected. And it's going to depend on Congress and the legislation that they adopt to protect voting rights, which is under assault. Lucian Holness is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Long after women got the vote in 1920, Black women still had to fight hard to cast their ballots. Despite passage of the 19th Amendment, there were determined efforts, in Southern states in particular, to keep Black women from voting town after town enforced poll taxes and literacy tests, and even ripped up ballots right in people's faces. But Black women fought back in the places where they lived, loved, worked, and raised their children. They would have voter education classes. And so in response to, let's say, the literacy test, then they would push to make sure that everyone could read and write. If there was the poll tax, then they would have bake sales and other ways to create income that one would have the necessary funds in order to participate. This is Khadijah Miller, a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Norfolk State University. She says Black women were a huge force in pushing for their voting rights, For instance, the National Association of Colored Women had 40,000 members devoted just to working on voting rights. Khadijah, 2020 marks two anniversaries, really. One is the 150th anniversary of Black men getting the right to vote. It's also the 100th anniversary of women granted the right to vote. Did Black women really get full voting power 
when women got the vote with the 19th Amendment? Unfortunately, no, they did not. Uh, the It really was 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of white women gaining the right to vote. Um, and it wasn't really until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that Black women gained the full rights of voting, and all Black women. How could that be? If women broadly were granted the right to vote in 1920, it didn't say white women get the vote, right? That is true, but I think we have to look at historically in our society, when we say men and women, we refer to white men and women as they are the standard of what it is to be a man or woman in the United States. We say, you know, one is an American and there is an assumption that one is a white American. If one is something else, then one is an Asian American, an African American, a Latinx American, um, a Hindu American. And so for women, for it to say simply women received the right to vote, it there was an implication that it was white women only. Um, I will say, though, that prior to that, in certain states, there were Black women who were able to vote because their states authorized their ability to vote in states like California, New York, Illinois. But generally speaking, Black women did not gain the right to vote until 1965. And in those states where Black women were granted the right to vote earlier, was it all Black women or just women of a certain class? It was women of a certain class and means. Um, It was also um, in certain, even within a state, perhaps only in certain parts of that state where Black women were able to vote. Um, And so we see that the disparity... Um, and the inconsistency in numbers persisted until 1965. So when women after the Civil War were agitating for the right to vote, for all of those decades, how much did racism pervade the women's suffrage movement? Um, It was consistent as in all of the other movements at that time as well. Now, some scholars will say that really when African-American were granted the right to vote, then there was a charge to expediency among white women for white women to gain the right to vote. There was a very strong ideal that how could Black men who were considered three-fifths to be able to vote before white women It was motivation for white women to gain the right to vote so that white people in general would have that privilege and right instead of uh, Black people. And so race played a large factor in the suffragist movement. Although, I will say this, there were, you know, the leaders of, when we think about the suffrage movement, we think of Susan B. Anthony, we think of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, we think of Carrie Chapman Catt. Um, and Carrie Chapman Catt, you know, we, we see the parade after um, the 36th state ratified the right to vote um, just in August 1920. And you see the parade with Carrie Chapman Catt, who was the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association at the time. But they made it very clear. They realized that although there were white women, and we have to be fair, there were white women who did want all women, black and white, to be able to vote. But at the same time, the segregational divide in our country after the passing of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, Southern white women refused to align themselves with Black women. And so although you had Northern white women who were open to Black women having the right to vote, Southern white women did not. And so to appease Southern white women, the suffragist movement focused on white women first. And it was the idea that if white women received the right to vote, then Black women could come along later. I was stunned to read a flyer I saw in a women's suffrage exhibition in the Library of Virginia. The flyer is 
1915, and it was a it was published in the Richmond Evening Journal, and it's called Virginia Warns Her People Against Women's Suffrage. It says 29 counties would go under Negro rule, 60 counties in the state of Georgia, the entire state of Mississippi. And then it says, what of your state, your county, isn't it about time for reflecting men and women to think and act? It's really a a sobering reminder of how strategic some of the efforts to actually block Black women from getting the vote was. It wasn't just an oversight or were focused on white women. It was a specific extra obstacle for Black women. Most definitely so. And I think that it lends itself, one, to the fact of we have to acknowledge the impactful role of race in our country. And, you know, this social political construct that has been um, developed and fostered and nurtured and that there is a um, presumptive notion that if one is Black, then one is lesser than. One is lesser than in terms of intellect, in in terms of ability, in terms of talents, that one is lesser than one who is white. And so uh, in this anti-suffrage movement, in, in pushing to go against Black women, to not allow Black women to have the ability to vote, then we end up suppressing them and empowering others. And so you use that to create fear in the minds and lives of white people so that they're successful. And then so that Black people and Black women in particular are not allowed to vote. Further language in this flyer, and it was published in 1915, says, it's to be remembered that the literacy test would not work in choking off the colored women's vote. The colored people are decreasing their percentage of illiteracy very fast especially among their women and girls. No safeguard would be left but the poll tax. And if colored women knew they could get votes and rule the rich and important counties by paying $1.50 apiece, we're inclined to think most of them would be willing to go hungry if necessary to do it. That is such a strategic thinking, a way that's obviously people saying, we're in trouble here and we need to block Black women. You know, it, it, it is very interesting. And I think it also speaks to how they recognize the um, organizational effectiveness of Black women in spite of all of those barriers against them, that they recognize that Black women demonstrated themselves to be effective organizers and to be impactful and influential, that they were influencers in their communities. And so therefore they realized, wait a second, they are literate because we know that uh, the National Association of Colored Women, they worked to um, create schools and educational facilities and and home rearing and child development programs. They were your first social workers in the Black community. They also knew, though, that when you look at the, the statistics of the number of Black women who were teachers at the turn of the century, um, you had, you know, hundreds you know, thousands of African-Americans who were teachers, who were educating themselves and their young people so that they could fully participate in our society. And so therefore, no, we cannot use literacy as a barrier to stop them from voting. And if we create a poll tax, that's not going to work because we have seen how they will save and pull their money together to meet whatever goal they have. Yeah, that was interesting. They said the people are decreasing their percentage of illiteracy, especially among women and girls. That's interesting, right? It sounds deliberate. It it is. When we go back and look at the activities of Black women during that time, between 1896 and 1915, you see the development not only of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, but you also have the development of um, Black sororities and fraternities. 
And you also have um, the establishment and in greater numbers attendance of African-Americans in higher education. And so we see here that the teachers are Black women and they are teaching each other and they're teaching young people and the idea of lifting as we climb. That's the motto of the National Association of Colored Women. And so as a woman is able to climb the ladder of education or of business or of opportunity, that she also reaches back and empowers her community. And so this community-centered uh, I, the idea of being community centered and being community accountable. Black women, although you may have one teacher in a community, that one teacher is able to educate 50, 100 people. So one person has a very powerful impact. How many Black women could vote after the passage of the 19th Amendment? Was there much celebrating among Black women as well as white women? after passage and many more could vote? Some could vote, but also as you move into World War I, the backlash against Black women was so severe that the numbers really started to go down versus to increase. Um, and then with the increased onslaught of systemized segregation you did not see the numbers that one would think that you would see for Black women to be able to vote. Now, I will say the National Association of Colored Women, they had a suffrage department with 40,000 women, right? So they had the suffrage department of 40,000 Black women. They held voter education classes. Um, they were effective in local campaigns. So we know that Black women were involved. To what extent and to what barriers did they have? The passage of the 19th Amendment did not make it easier, for and, sure. And, and the barriers were mostly what we've always heard, that in the South there were poll taxes, there was the literacy test, the grandfather clause, that kind of thing? Or was it something else that was preventing voting? Was it registrars finding ways to keep people off the register rolls? For sure. It was uh, registrars refusing to accept. Um, it was just flat out refusal. They go to vote and they're not allowed in or they vote and then they, te they tear their ballot up in their face. So the, the, the refusal was um, evident and blatant and um, it, you know, it was used to distract. They would change the voting location. They would threaten their homes. They would threaten their men. They would, you know, use fear and torture. Um, and what we would, today we would say, you know, terrorist acts, they would use those types of tactics to fear and to make people scared to vote. Well, if you go to vote, you will not have a job. Um, if you go to vote, um, we will not provide a certain service. We're, we will harass your husband. Um, because at the same time, which is very interesting, at the same time that the 19th Amendment is passing, you have an increase in lynchings. And lynchings were not just of Black men, but children and women were lynched as well. Um, and so the the it was very effective to vote was to go against your life, was to put your life on the line. When when today in 2020 we say, oh, people died for the right, that is not an exaggeration. People died for the right to vote. So during this period and afterward leading up to the Voting Rights Act of 65, who are the Black women who were leading the right to vote movement and what were some of their strategies to get around these intimidation tactics? Well, you know, during the turn of the century going into the 1800s, the 1900s, you have uh, Mary Church Terrell in D.C., you have Ida B. Wells, Barnett in Illinois, 
Um, you have Hallie Quinn in Ohio and Mariah Stewart. Um, you have several Black women in the club movement, the Black club movement, who are active during this this quest for women's suffrage before World War I. Um, as you move forward, you have women like Fannie Lou Hamer um, as we move closer to the, the passage of the, of the Voting Rights Act. And these women organized locally. I think when we think about the right to vote, we often think of on a federal level with the presidency election. But on a local level, these women pushed to get the right to vote. And so they would have voter education classes in response to, let's say, the literacy test. Then they would push to make sure that everyone could read and write. If there was the poll tax, then they would work together. They would have bake sales and other ways to create income that one would have the necessary funds in order to participate. They would try to stay abreast of whatever those challenges were. And so we have these smaller local organizations who in their communities, where one lives and sleeps and works, where one loves and wants to create a a safe environment for their family, these Black women worked on a local level to secure the ability to vote. As you were doing your research on the history of the Black women's suffrage movement, what struck you the most as an aha moment for your understanding of the labor and the successes that went into this? Was there a moment for you? What stood out to me was their tenacity. The 1915 pamphlet um, that you read, it made me think about the Mississippi Senator uh, Vardaman who said that the Negro woman will be more offensive and more difficult to handle at the polls than the Negro man. Now, this is a Mississippi senator, and you read a pamphlet from Virginia. So in the South, we can see that the efforts and attention of those who were against women voting in general but Black women. So there was a strategic campaign against Black women. And Black women knew this. And so that means that you decide that you have the fortitude and the bravery, the courage to know that if I step outside my home and I push to gain this right, to fight for this right, to go against what is safe and easy, then I could lose my life. That this will hurt or could hurt my children. But I believe in this so strongly because I want full participation in our society. I want to be able to go to my local representative and to have a school that has running water and um, the facilities so that our children can be educated in a safe environment. That I wanna have a street lamp so that when once someone is walking home from the bus, that they can see where they're going and they're safe. That is what the vote represented. The vote represented not this fluffy, theoretical, you know, philosophical ideal of, you know, representation, but the representation was very tangible and realistic um, that would impact their everyday life, that the right to vote meant that you had an improved daily existence. Has your immersion in this topic made you feel more acutely how much work remains to be done for the Black women's vote now, even? Yes. 
sadly so. I mean, even more so, I would say on a local level. I was sharing with students earlier this year, I said to them, we put so much energy and efforts in the presidential election. But when it comes to what we will experience and what we, the impact to us in Virginia, it lends itself to the delegates we we elect, the senators we elect, our school, the people who are on our school boards, the our city council persons. That is the impact that we have. So that that's where we need to put our energies and efforts. Now the black women, one hundred years ago, they recognized that they knew. It wasn't now who we know who is elected in the White House is important, but they also knew that who was on your school board, who is your sheriff, the local representatives, the mayor, that the attorney general, you know, these positions that we see today that are holding, having a great impact. We think of the, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and the idea with the police, the sheriff is an elected position. The Black women, you know, they were they were insightful and we really can glean lessons from their behavior and their energy and their fortitude um, and their consistency. They, they were pushing for the right to vote for 100 years. They didn't, they never stopped. Khadijah Miller, thank you for talking with me today and with good reason. Thank you for having me. Khadijah Miller is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Norfolk State University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aidan Carroll is our intern. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.